In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We are just about halfway through Trinity Tide, the longest season of the church. In the summer days, they have surely stretched out. The gardens are producing their bounties, and fall will come upon us soon. The liturgical cycle has slowed down with fewer changes in our prayers and colors and vestments. It seems a good time to rest, to enjoy the fruits of our labor. And that, according to the church fathers, is exactly what we should not be doing at this point. You see, our state of being that we received at our baptisms, a state of being that is new life, a new creation, it must be lived out and then nurtured in our moral life so that we may share in Christ's great gift to the church, Himself, and eternal life. We live out morally what we are ontologically. And this means that it's our duty day to day to live our life in such a way that it reflects our incorporation into that new body, Christ Himself. Like Paul in the epistle, he labors continuously for the church, living out his life of dramatic conversion in humble service to the body of Christ that he had previously tried to kill. Now turn to the Gospel, where again we see this emphasis on a life of humility and conversion. Jesus gives us this uh, parable contrasting the prideful Pharisee to the humble publican. It should be noted that when we look at the Pharisee and his prayers, he doesn't speak anything untrue, does he? It's true that he is unlike most men. It's true that he fasts and that he ties and lives a life of respectable principles. So what's so wrong about his prayer then? Well, Jesus introduces the Pharisee by saying that he stood to pray and that he prayed to himself. This can mean that he prays silently. But the play on words here is obvious. He's not praying towards God. He's praying towards himself, for himself. Jesus notes that both the Pharisee and the publican have come to the temple, but the Pharisee goes closer to the temple and the publican stands afar off. And if that's true, if you can imagine this in your mind's eye, the Pharisee then, who's closer to the temple, is looking at the publican, meaning that he's not even facing the temple himself, where he knows the presence of God is. Jesus is showing us that this man is not, he's not even concerned with God's presence. Even though the prayer is addressed to God, both the content in this man's heart is not about God as prayer should be. And if this man was acknowledging himself before God, then he would not be equating his own righteous actions with the righteousness of God. So Jesus offers then the publican as our example. Now a publican is a public official, a tax collector, and everyone hated tax collectors. Things don't change. The Jews hated tax collectors. The Romans hated the tax collectors. And if you look in the New Testament, you'll see there's a slander of Jesus saying that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. You see, they're just lumped together. Of course they're sinners. They're tax collectors. So it's a shock. It was really shocking that Jesus is then using a publican as the example 
of a humble prayer. The publican is standing afar off. He's not able, even, even able to approach the temple. And he cast his eyes down, pleading to the Lord for his mercy. The publican is entering into the presence of the Lord. And he then takes on a position of humility, smiting his breast and only says a simple prayer addressed to God, God be merciful to me a sinner. The publican is recognizing two truths that the Pharisee has missed. First, that he is a sinner. That we are all a sinner. But second, he's recognizing that God is merciful. A fact that the Pharisee has no need to even recognize. This is a life of humility. This is the type of humility we're talking about. And a type of humility that must seep into one's being as a habit. A continual posture before God and man. This is the type of humility, of course, that we see in Christ. As He, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Christ took on our humanity, took on this humility in the womb of Mary, who herself was a humble servant of God. Today is the feast of the Dormition of Mary. The Dormition just means her falling asleep, her death. Like when Paul says in the epistle, he talks about those saints who have fallen asleep. This is talking about Mary falling asleep, her death. And today is also the day that the church remembers her assumption, which is the lifting up of her body into heaven, just as Elijah, just as Enoch were assumed body and all into heaven, and so was Jesus assumed body and all into heaven at His ascension. So today, as we take a look at Mary's uh, death, we're taking a look at her whole life. And it's a great coincidence for us that this feast this year lands on Trinity 11, which is the Sunday of focusing on God's, on our humility, of how to serve God in humility. Mary provides us with the premier example of a human serving God in humility. That might sound a bit extreme, the premier example, given the few number of times that Mary actually appears in Scripture. But if we pay attention to what Scripture actually says of Mary, then we will begin to see her life as this premier example of a humble life devoted to Jesus. Attention paid to Mary's role will help our attention and guide our lives towards Christ. As our opening hymn said, Sing of Mary, pure and lowly, virgin mother undefiled. Sing of God's own Son, most holy, who became her little child. Fairest child of fairest mother, God the Lord who came to earth. Word made flesh, our very brother takes our nature by his birth. So why is she given this, this great place in the history of the church? Why is she called the fairest mother? Why do we have an icon of Our Lady in the sanctuary? Well, when God sent Gabriel, the angel, to Mary, He declared that she was favored by God. And then God asked of her a mysterious and tremendous act. 
which was to be overshadowed by the Holy Ghost and bear the Son of God. Her response, which is called the fiat, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. This is the model of humility as she seeks to serve God and give herself over to Him. Rather than turning away from such a radical and self-giving call, Mary stays and she accepts the Lord. And from that point on, the entirety of Mary's life is shaped by her Son. As she bears Jesus in her womb and raises Him as a child, she shows forth this humble dedication as the Holy Family must flee. Flee from her family. Flee from her friends and relatives. You see, the mission of her son has now taken precedence over her desire to be with her family and relatives. At the temple, Mary brings the baby. And this is when Simeon recognizes that this baby is the Messiah. And then he foretells in a strange passage that a sword will pierce the heart of Mary. It's a declaration of death. For your heart to be pierced with a, soul, with a sword, that's death. And yet, Mary does not turn away. Again at the temple, Mary finds Jesus after three days of searching and now starts to understand Simeon's statement. As Jesus claims service to His Father in heaven, Mary is having to give up her son. She is so lovingly born and raised. And this giving up, this offering up of her son, this separation of her son from her, it happens again and again. As at the wedding of Cana, when she starts him on his ministry without probably knowing, or when she visits him during his ministry, and then he claims that all in the kingdom of God are to be his family. And then, when he's taken forcibly, he's tried, falsely, tortured, crucified, and mocked on the cross. We know from the Gospel of John that she was there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus then looked down at Mary and He handed her over to John. Mary must give up Jesus as her Son in order that He might be the Messiah of the world as her own Messiah. Jesus took on the salvation of the world alone. And each time He separated Himself from His mother in order to accomplish that mission, she stood by Him, never revoking, never turning, but humbly accepting her Son as her Lord. I often used to think it would have been much easier for Mary than for me to accept Jesus as Messiah. But now I'm starting to see what great kind of temptation laid with Mary. That here is her son that she wants to grasp. She wants to pull back from that death. She wants to pull back from that torture so that she might have him. And that whole time, she is offering her son. Knowing what is to come slowly but surely. And it does. Mary's humble service to Christ is our premier example of service. It's a whole life lived in a posture of humility, never turning away from the light of the world which she bore in her own womb. 
but constantly pondering in her heart what new service she would have to give as the identity of her baby boy was slowly revealed. From the first instant Mary is mentioned in the New Testament all the way to the end, her posture is towards, her posture towards God is one, like the publican, of a humble acceptance, a turning over to God the gift of life that had been given to her. And that's the life of her son, and it's also her own life. Do you see? That's your model. That's the model of what you are to do in your life. Not to, to, to get Jesus for your own. Not to grab Him from your own incentive. But to offer your life to Him because He is your Lord. He is your Messiah. Mary's special role helps us see this. And her special role in the history of salvation it made many of the church fathers see her as a new Eve. Because Mary's role in Scripture, I want you to get this, it's not just instrumental. It's not like God is just using her body to be a really nice surrogate. There's a moral component going on here that her life really mattered. Her acceptance had, one, had a large repercussion since by her fiat, the let it be done unto me, Mary reverses the disobedience of Eve. When she visits her cousin, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's baby jumps in the womb, Mary, Elizabeth turns to Mary and says, Blessed is she that believed, unlike Eve. Uh, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, he wrote this about the year 200. And this is very uh, similar to all uh, many of the writings of the church fathers about Mary. This is what he wrote. Eve was disobedient, for she did not obey when as yet she was a virgin. And even as she, having indeed a husband, Adam, but being nevertheless as yet a virgin, having become disobedient, was made the cause of death, both to herself and to the entire human race. So also did Mary, having a man betrothed to her, and being nevertheless a virgin, by yielding obedience, become the cause of salvation both to herself and then the whole human race. Mary's fiat then was the act of human obedience that reversed the whole pattern of disobedience. Her acceptance deserves the highest praise that we can give to another human being. I like Wordsworth's attempt. He says, Mary is our tainted nature's solitary boast. Our tainted nature's Solitary boast. Uh, for many Protestants, uh, we Anglo-Catholics esteem Mary too much, as if we are giving to her praise that's only reserved for God. And that's not true. Of course, we recognize that Mary is still a creature, and that between all creation and God, there exists an infinite chasm. But that being said, we still insist that Mary is the pinnacle of humanity. And we do not hesitate to love her, knowing that, this is what Bishop Chad always says, we can never love Mary more than Jesus does. And through that love, Mary, like in our icon, will always gesture and move our love towards Christ. 
From Mary, we have received our Messiah, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of the Father in flesh. She is truly then the Mother of God because Jesus, her Son, was fully God and fully man. He doesn't take, and this is, this is important to, 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 to know, He doesn't take existence from Mary. He doesn't take His being from Mary. His personhood. He's already a person. He's the second person of the Trinity. Right? This is why uh, the virgin birth is not something that God did just to, hey, hey, let's have something really cool here. It's fitting. Because Mary, Mary, in this conception, Christ does not need a personhood. He doesn't need to be brought into existence. He already exists from eternity. What He's taking from Mary is not existence, but humanity. And by the conception of Christ in her womb, He takes on our humanity. He heals it. And He makes it possible for all men and women, including His mother, to be reconciled to God the Father. We are reconciled by joining Christ's mystical body, the church. And in that mystical reality, so we have to think of things a little bit differently here, Mary is our own mother because we are now Christ. And Mary is Christ's mother. And she is our mother by providing for us an example of how to live a life of humility dedicated to Jesus Christ, her Son. May we renounce our disobedience then, put away our sins, and give back to God what He desires of us, our lives. Then we too can offer up ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto God like the Blessed Virgin Mary did, the Mother of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.